Thank you for joining us today. This is the Workforce Show and your host, Cindy Gern. We are launching a program today focused on energy, energy policy, and energy opportunities. We are, as a program, focused on major issues impacting job creation and economic development at the national and local level. Uh, you know, energy is a very high on everybody's radar as a major issue that can spur economic growth, job creation, but it also can divide a community and a country uh, for the values, money, et cetera. Uh, Frank Oliva, who has a long background in experience in the energy field, is going to raise uh, up uh, some of these issues and help us better understand them. Thank you, Frank, for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Cindy. Thank you for having me. Frank, uh, Frank and I met at a energy-related uh, meeting in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, a couple of months ago, and I was very impressed with him. And I also realized that I don't have the depth of understanding of the energy field, but I know it's so important to job creation, and which is one of our primary areas of interest. So I've asked Frank, who knows the subject, knows the topic, and is a very excellent uh, communicator, and we'll tell you a little bit about his background, uh, to take charge and lead us in a series of, of conversations with experts uh, that uh, will come together and, and talk honestly and openly about some of the things you need to be aware of as you're planning for the future. Frank, uh, Frank's education is interesting. He uh, has undergrad from Providence College in political science and got his master's in foreign service. And uh, you know, so he's not overseas. He's here, and we're going to kind of understand why his uh, background and his education led him to become uh, an expert in aspects of energy policy and practices. Uh, he started his career, almost started his career, as a presidential management fellow with the Department of Commerce and then moved from there to uh, congressional and intergovernmental affairs and then to you did work with international trade. Is that correct, Frank? It is, yes. That's exactly right, Cindy. And then you uh, moved over to the private sector uh, to, the form, uh, to the firm of strategic communications and there you're responsible for strategy and public affairs and communications. Can you tell us a little bit about what, that, what you do there, what your area of responsibility is? Sure, absolutely, Cindy. Uh, so Strategic Communications is a, is a full-service public relations and government relations firm. We're actually headquartered up in uh, the very warm regions of upstate New York. Uh, I say sarcastic. Uh, you are being humorous, I, I expect. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, and um, our, our firm really works with, with uh, small to medium-sized companies in a variety of industries, uh, finance, energy, banking, advanced manufacturing, education, so uh, small uh, community colleges, charter schools. We uh, assist with helping folks have sensitive conversations. And, you know, that's kind of a broad rubric, but really everything we do, do fall, falls under that rubric. And uh, I tend yeah, to Sensitive conversations? The rubric yeah, of sensitive conversations? Yeah, and and so and by that I mean we help we help uh, companies and organizations communicate with policymakers, including legislators and regulators, with the media, with their customers, clients, whoever they serve, uh, mm -hmm. and other public audiences, and and help them communicate 
not always necessarily difficult issues, but sensitive ones, ones that are important to their um, to their organization's mission. And mm. more specifically, I focus on working with primarily energy companies and a very specific mm. type of energy company, uh, companies that offer uh, services directly to retail consumers. So whether it's offering renewable energy services and products, whether it's offering competitive electricity and natural gas in markets that allow that, we work with companies that want to directly serve consumers and do directly serve consumers. So more with the the competitive third-party companies who sell mm-hmm. on the, the utility grids. Okay. Let me let me just jump in here and ask you. Uh, I'm a consumer. I am a policymaker. I am a person who is trying to sell somebody uh, something that I have in the energy field. I'm I am I am the who are who are the players when you kind of form these uh these abilities, these bridges of of communications, who who are what are the roles? Who are the people that are part of that communication pipeline, if you will? Is it the consumer? Are they and if so, what are the questions they are and I'm not asking about your particular clients, but in general what are people in that pipeline or that process asking? What are the questions that generally come up? Sure. Now, it's a great question, Cindy. And, you, you know, a lot of what we find is that consumers know that energy is important, and it impacts their daily life. And, you know, we may all uh, remember certainly our parents and grandparents being uh, reminding us to turn the lights out and uh, being frugal with electricity. Um, but it, but really, you know, for almost 100 years, consumers' interaction with the, uh, you know, energy system, if you will, has been essentially that, you know, uh, turn out the lights, turn on the lights, turn on the heat, turn off the heat. And when something goes wrong, we're, we certainly become very acutely aware, especially in a cold winter or a hot summer. But for the most part, we come to ju- have just come to rely on the utilities to provide electricity and natural gas. And, and that's pretty much it. Um, we know we get a bill in the mail, and we know our bills can go up and down depending on uh, the weather and the season in particular and our own usage. But for really for 100 years since the time of Edison, people haven't expected that much more from their energy utility. But what we're seeing, especially in the last 10 years, is that changes to both the energy sector and also consumer preference and ability to express that preference are really disruptive in, in both positive and negative ways. Um, it, it's really, you know, Cindy, we like to say it's the energy, the retail energy space of today, in a lot of ways is analogous to where the, the telephone industry was. You know, for a long time you would have your telephone provider, uh, you'd pick up the phone, you know, that making a long-distance call was more expensive, um, but you don't really expect anything other than picking up the, you know, the handset off the wall. Well, in the 90s, as the cell phone industry and cell phone technology developed, that whole model of long distance, of regulated telephone service, I mean, it was completely uh, upturned. And as a result today, people have preferences and expectations about what they expect to get out of their phone, particularly their Mm -hmm. smartphone, that are completely different than they were 20 years ago. 
So let me jump in and ask you a question here because uh, I think I, I see where you're going. You're, we're, you're talking about what the, what, the, what the consumer is asking and what the consumer is learning to expect. If you're comparing it to the, the telephony and all the changes that, occur, that have occurred in the phone service, my question as a consumer is why do we need all of this change? I mean, how has it really? Yes, I know it, it benefited us to a certain exp- to a certain level, but it seems at the end of the day, it's cost us a lot more than than it was uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and also it's so much more complex. Who has the time to figure out all of this? So, if you were going to, since you are comparing the two. <laughs> Let's jump into the energy world and tell us how that model is being played out as we as consumers are are sitting and are dealing with, and I can personally speak to the challenge I've had in keeping heat at this regulated temperature this past week. (laughs) Go ahead. Sure. No, you're absolutely right. And and the analogy certainly, uh, you know, only can go so far. But what's driving the change? I I would say that, that there are two things that are driving the change. One is policy, and, and it's kind of more of a top-down driver. And then the other is technology, but the way technology is shaping consumer preferences, which is a, a bottom-up change. So the top-down change. On the policy front, you have issues like energy independence, which is something that – which has been a, you know, part of the public conversation for a long time – but now with the you mean, what what do you mean by you mean like we're we're free of depending on on a Middle East oil? Is yeah, that the primary dependent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and particularly natural gas, which is a very important natural resource and one that we're in a bit of a renaissance in, in the US now. we we're we're now able using new technology, which is not without its own controversy, called hydraulic fracturing. We've been able to tap into vast natural gas resources here in, at home that uh, we didn't have access to before. And as a result of that, the, the whole model for electricity costs, because natural gas produces a significant amount of electricity, is changing. Heating is changing. Consumers who don't have natural gas are more interested in getting it now. Consumers who might be using heating oil or propane or other uh, off-grid heating sources. So you have you have that driver, that whole kind of, well, hey, we have an opportunity to be energy independent. At the same time, kind of counteracting that a little bit, we have the whole issue of climate change, which has really been elevated in the public consciousness. And the climate change debate and the the proponents of, of dealing with climate change in an immediate fashion have said, well, natural gas can serve as a potential bridge fuel because it has less greenhouse gas emissions than other types of energy like coal, which we uh, continue to use extensively in the U.S., but which produces significant significant amounts of greenhouse gas. So those proponents have said we really need to be looking to transition our whole electricity system away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. The challenges of renewable energy, which tends to be small-scale, versus the large-scale natural gas and coal and nuclear plants means that the whole model that we've been used to for 100 years uh, just uh, by necessity is going to become more complex because you're dealing with 
what's called a distributed system versus a, a centralized system. So, so what does that mean, actually? Let me, let me, let me. I am, I am your typical uh, consumer, and I don't have the background, so I'm going to ask you typical questions on a dumb consumer like me. No, not dumb. Yes. Oh. Um, when, so are you saying that when we've had these huge companies and we've had uh, limited options for for uh, energy? That we, you know, I'm not even talking about whether it was a monopoly or not. We're now transitioning into small mom and pop sorts of energy centers, resource centers that we go and shop at. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely some of it. I mean, we're certainly moving, our energy system is potentially moving away from the centralized model in which you have a utility which both generates the electricity in a big facility and then distributes it across those big transmission lines you see as you're driving mm -hmm. down the highway. And All then right. Just, uh, those big, ugly transmission lines, by the way. Go ahead. Those transmission lines take it to the, to the, local, the local lines, which you see either, you know, on the street corners and mm -hmm. the, along the, the residential streets or, in some right. cases, buried. So that's kind of the traditional model. But now what we're seeing is that people can put solar panels on the roof of their house. And mm -hmm. people can have wind turbines um, that are on their farmland, which they can then mm -hmm. connect to the grid and sell electricity to the grid. Mm -hmm. You're seeing other forms of energy like geothermal energy, which is using the, the heat underneath the, the Earth's crust or, uh, not, mm -hmm. or at least beneath the, the surface to produce electricity using uh, small turbines that are put in the river, in rivers um, to generate electricity based on tides and, and river flow. So we have all sorts of new ways to generate electricity that are sm local, small scale, you know, if not quite mom and pop, at least mm -hmm. different than having one central natural gas plant or nuclear plant. You know, no one's going to build a nuclear reactor in their backyard, hopefully, um, mm -hmm. but you can certainly put a solar panel uh, on the roof of your garage. And so that, that is a real disruption to the traditional way we've produced electricity. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality is you can overstate this as well because most experts would say that we can only produce so much electricity from renewable energy. There's some reliability issues with renewable energy um, because you can't produce electricity when the sun isn't shining or isn't blowing. Um, and so as a result of that, um, People still expect the lights to come on when they hit the switch, and so mm -hmm. there's always a need for those larger gas, coal, nuclear facilities. So, mm -hmm. But but the utilities are in a different they're in, in in somewhat of a difficult position because the way they've made money for a hundred years is potentially mm -hmm. really changing. So the so in this uh, example that you've just you know, outlined for us of the situation, if you will, the uh, consumer is asking, uh, A, is uh, this going to cost more money? Uh, what do I have to do? What's the benefit to, if I'm, if I'm politically and socially conscious, I'm obviously concerned about the environment, and uh, is this going to be uh, a positive or a negative impact? I know there's lots of controversy with fracking over that very topic. Um, as if I'm a, and of course, loss of jobs. I mean, in West Virginia, for example, that's a huge issue and question is you move away from coal is that going to cause a lot of people 
to lose jobs or, or are there new jobs being created? As a, an owner of one of these uh, energy companies, I'm asking as the existing large companies, what am I asking? Uh, what, I'm, what are the questions I'm asking? And as an owner of a like a utility from that perspective? Right. Yeah. Right. You know, utilities are just like any industry when that's established, when disruption occurs, the utility companies have the opportunity to either try to maintain the status quo or adapt to the situation. And, and I by no means mean to, beat up, to sound like I'm beating up on utility companies. There's a lot of utilities in the U.S. who are doing very innovative work in uh-huh. rolling out renewable energy with customers, helping customers uh, install solar panels and other mm-hmm. renewable energy on site, working to provide uh, smart meters, which uh, have been in the news quite a bit. These are electricity meters that allow two-way communication between a person's home and the utility. And mm-hmm. ultimately, it can allow a consumer to pay less, pay less for electricity when demand is lower, so perhaps at night, versus during mm-hmm. the, the afternoon on a hot summer day when electricity prices are higher because there's more demand. So mm-hmm. that kind of innovation Utility companies in a lot of places are leading the way on that. Mm-hmm. And they, but from a utility's perspective, it's really how can they ride the disruption or ride the transition in such a way that they, you know, still come out at the other end uh, with a viable mm-hmm. business model, but, um, you know, recognizing the fact that the way things have been done for, again, for almost a century are really changing. Now, some things won't change, as I said. People are going to continue to rely on the utility to restore Mm-hmm. Uh, electricity and natural gas service after a storm, and as a result of that, you know, utilities utilities enjoy their monopoly because they provide a public service. There's there's no right. question about that. Mm-hmm. But they also, when they when they have a monopoly or they have uh, you know some special contracts, et cetera, they also have a, I guess, an obligation to the community they serve. And some of these large companies have been great stewards of their communities in which they operate. You know, they've provided money for low-income families to have utilities. They've been active in community uh, resources, social services. Uh, I'm wondering, it's uh, not something I expect you to answer, but it is a question as a consumer. What What's the impact on our the fabric of our communities when all these small, or, or not necessarily small, but alternative uh energy resources are, are coming into your community? Are they are they part of your community, or are they just kind of making money off of your community? That's, that's yeah, a commandment, Maria. No, it's a great point, Cindy, because you're right. I mean, and people show yeah. tremendous loyalty to, to the local utility company for a lot of the reasons mm-hmm. outlined. But as we've also yeah. seen, uh, you know, from that, that getting to that bottom-up driver I was, I was hinting at earlier, as technology changes and as people's options have exploded, whether thanks to the Internet or thanks to, to the rise of, you know, a kind of a national unified consumer culture where people's preferences are really shaped by tastemakers and it's just constantly mm-hmm. evolving, people have shown this, this hunger for more choice and more opportunities to, to customize and to personalize products and services. We're seeing this across industries. 
And more and more energy is, is no different. People want the opportunity if they're interested in supporting wind energy and renewable energy. They want the opportunity to do that. If they're interested um, in, in getting the best price and, and taking a chance on the markets, they're, they're interested in doing that. If they're interested in having a fixed price so they don't have to worry about the heating bill or cooling bill rising in the winter or summer, they want that choice. So I think what we're seeing is that even though people do continue to have tremendous loyalty to their uh, kind of home uh, utility provider, they're also powerfully motivated by choice and the opportunity to, to choose. Okay. So we've kind of given the highlights of what I as a consumer, you listener as a consumer, uh, might be thinking about uh, as well as uh, where you're going to start a business if you are interested in starting a business, what that business might be. Um, what jobs might be there if I am in education, uh, I'm interested in knowing where the skills are that are needed uh, to meet the, the new technologies and the new delivery, the new uh, energy sources, et cetera, correct? And if I'm a business that's existing, uh, what what am I asking? What am I concerned about? Because I know in every uh, in every county where there's elected officials, in every state where there's, we have offices of energy, people are, are co coming to them and wanting something. They want to give something. They want to get something. What is it that people are approaching the uh, the legislative bodies for that are in businesses or have businesses, et cetera? What is it that they're doing? Sure, sure. Well, you know, you kind of have two angles. So the businesses approaching state legislatures and local government officials, one, are interested in making sure that their energy costs stay at a reasonable level because for most businesses, energy can be one of the most expensive expenses they have uh, for their operating their business. So whenever this transition is occurring and it kind of occurs at different speeds in different places, businesses really want to make sure that they are not uh, being penalized or being hurt by the transition to, a, to kind of a new energy economy. On the other hand, businesses who see an opportunity in this transition want to make sure that the proper incentives exist for uh, retraining workers for jobs working on renewable energy, for example, um, for example, you know, and it's interesting that some some old older businesses, more established businesses, are really changing the way they do business in order to to meet this new demand. For example, roofing contractors, people who put the roof on on your house or repair roofs, are actually getting into the solar energy business, and in a lot of ways, it makes a ton of sense. You know, who knows the roof of your house better than your uh, roofing contractor? You're perfect. And so they're. They're, they are very eagerly getting into the business of installing solar panels on um, the houses of, of people who are interested in doing it. And they're partnering with other companies who are interested in promoting solar energy, who provide the actual panels, who set up arrangements with consumers for how the electricity from those panels will be used. Um, and so, but those, uh, you know, solar installers uh, it's really a, a dramatically growing profession. In fact, you know, I know we had talked about this uh, earlier uh, uh, between between us before the show that the 
Solar Foundation, uh, an organization that, that promotes solar energy, uh, released a national solar job census for 2013 at the end of last month. And they noted that the, there was a 19.9% growth in solar energy employment since 2012. And at, during the same period, in solar employment grew 10 times faster than the national average employment rate of growth. So mm -hmm. this industry that is just exploding in terms of um, opportunities uh, for, for folks, and that, that includes everything from um, sales and marketing jobs to the actual jobs of maintaining and installing solar panels on people's homes and businesses. So there's tremendous opportunities here, and, and we're seeing community colleges and other community organizations really ramping up the, the training and certification programs to, to give people the skills they need to, to succeed in this industry. And, and that's very important. You made some really interesting points. And just so our listeners know that uh, some of these points are going to be carried on, uh, carried over into uh, separate conversations uh, that you were going to have going forward that you're going to have with experts in the in the industry and in the field. One, one issue, you know, I see the role of government. What is the role of government? Because I know government came into some direct hits with um, uh, Department of Energy's grants to uh, solar companies, the Solera, yes, in yes. California. Yep. But when you, they, they get, government gets criticized for helping to underwrite some of these initiatives. Uh, and is that a fair hit, given what we know about China funding new companies? What yeah, do you think? yeah it's, a, it's a very important question. I mean, we'll, we haven't really touched on it yet, but it is one of the, the topics I hope we'll touch on in a future uh, conversation, mm -hmm. um, which is, which is the, the international marketplace uh, when it comes to renewable energy. And, and we absolutely see our competitors in China and Germany, India, very aggressively developing their own renewable energy markets both in terms of the deployment, the use of renewable energy, but also of more concern, I think, to, to folks here in the States, they're developing the manufacturing base to produce solar panels and wind turbines and other technology. Mm -hmm. And there is no question, I, you know, speaking uh, um, as a private citizen now, not as a former government official, but there's no question that it seems like the Chinese government uh, and some other entities provide a lot of significant support for their own industries. Whether that support is, meets the legal definition of a subsidy or not is, is a matter of uh, intense debate. But just like you know, we want to encourage the development of certain industries, our country, our allies and competitors want to do the same thing. They, they see the potential benefits. Now, sometimes the U.S. government and, and local governments, bless you, are, are criticized for making what you might say are bad investments. Solyndra is kind of the classic example right now. I think for the most part, though, what we see is that government is interested in not necessarily picking winners and losers, but is really interested in fostering an environment in which the, the best companies and the best technologies will, will ultimately rise to the top. And it's a very difficult mm -hmm. strike between um, providing support for, for growing industry um, versus, uh, you know, picking uh, winners and losers. And, uh, you know, the politics of that certainly play into it at all as, as well. But in general, I think DOE and other government agencies are really focused on providing that initial in incentive to help 
universities, the national labs, and of course, uh, you know, private private sector mm-hmm. firms to develop the new technologies that you know some technologies we, we we're not even aware of yet that that are kind okay. of lurking the surface that that might really be the future of energy production. Okay. Uh, Frank, because of time, uh, what I'd like to do is uh, kind of summarize this uh, section with what you consider maybe the two or three important takeaways from what we've just been discussing. And then uh, come back, take a short break, and then we'll come back, listeners, and uh, talk about three areas that are of, of importance uh, in, the, in the Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Northern Virginia region related to energy and a couple of others. So could you help us by uh, kind of summarizing what we've been talking about and, and maybe some three highlights, three points that as, as consumers or as businesses uh, that we or as educated, you know, community colleges you mentioned, our takeaways from this discussion? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I would say the, the major takeaway should be that we're in a period of intense transition between a 100-year-old model of how energy is produced and delivered to consumers and businesses. We're in the midst of a transition from that to a new model, which some have called a, a distributed or decentralized model, where more and more electricity will be produced in a variety of ways at the local level, and consumers will have more and more options and choices for how uh, they use energy and where that energy comes from. At the same time, there is no question that the uh, maintaining the reliability and the safety of our energy system that we've enjoyed for so long is critical. Okay. Now, I I have one other question. I'm kind of breaking my own rule here. Uh, what is it that the consumer – what are the couple of things that the consumer needs to know in order to be an informed consumer and participant in the conversation about kinds of energies that their community is evaluating? Sure. I, I think the most important thing is that consumers need to know that ultimately what, what they – that choice is, is less about price, even though for a lot of people it's the dominant uh, concern at this point in time. But choice is really about how to use energy in new and creative ways and thinking about their own energy usage, when they use energy, how they use energy, whether they're using it for an electric vehicle or whether they're using it for new energy efficient appliances, that they have opportunities to impact and affect their energy. And for those, and I think really most of us who are concerned about the environment and climate change and other issues, um, you can actually make a real demonstrable impact Um, based on just being aware of your own energy usage, where your energy comes from, knowing it. And also, for those who have uh, started looking at opportunities like putting solar panels on your house or working with a a competitive energy supplier to get um, energy that, that is sourced from renewable energy sources like wind turbines, it's important to really understand the product. It's important to understand the time horizons for savings, if there are savings. And it's important to understand, you know, what's different about uh, a particular contract from how you've been getting your energy uh, from the utility uh, up till that point. So it's really about, you know, it's kind of buyer beware as in any industry, but 
Um, there's, there's tremendous opportunities. Consumers just need to really be willing to educate themselves, just as they were willing to educate themselves on how to use the iPhone, even though it's uh, dramatically different from an old I'm murder. a slow learner. I am a slow learner. Don't even go in that direction. <laughs> so many. Frank Oliva, thank you so much for kicking off this, this uh, informative and important series on energy that's going to have topics and guests that will be of great interest to the business owner, the, the elected official, the educator as well. We have been uh, having a conversation with Frank Oliva, who is with uh, Strategic Communications, and he specializes in the energy sector. And Frank will be continuing uh, his conversation uh, shortly uh, by talking about three areas that are of importance. One are one area is the similarities and differences between Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. in terms of energy policies and strategies. Another is the tax federal programs, such as projection tax credits. And third, the outlook for growth in renewable sector jobs in the D.C. Maryland area. So we're going to take a break, and we look forward to having you come back and, and continuing to listen to this conversation. And, by the way, uh, at the end of this uh, first part, uh, the the additional, the other programs, the new programs, if you will, uh, on these energy topics that Frank will be hosting uh, will be advertised in, uh, on our newsletter. Thanks again, Frank. Thank you. Welcome back uh, to our show, the Workforce Show, and we're here with Frank Abiyo talking about energy and its impact on business, communities, and economy to a continuation of a conversation I have had with Frank Oliva, who is going to be hosting a series on energy for the Workforce Show. And our first show, this show, uh, introduces Frank and introduces the major subjects uh, and issues that are impacting policy, they're impacting opportunities for business businesses and their impacting opportunities for jobs. Frank, thank you for uh, continuing this conversation with us. And uh, we will, let's continue. Uh, you had three, mentioned three major areas of, of importance that you wanted to touch on uh, that are kind of the stepping stone to your uh, other programs going forward. Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, what are the similarities and differences between D.C., Virginia, and Maryland, for example, in their state energy policies and regulatory priorities? We, can, we touched on this a little bit earlier when we were saying, what is it that the elected official needs to know? But can you kind of give us a, an overview of where you're headed with that? Sure, sure. Well, you know, one of the, the main ways that, uh, that states – influence uh, energy policy, particularly what we might call renewable energy or clean energy, is through something called a renewable energy standard or renewable energy portfolio standard. Without getting bogged into the technical details, basically it mandates that any energy produced and consumed in the state, um, a certain percent of, percentage of it has to come from qualified renewable energy sources like wind or solar or hydropower. And there's lots of debate in each state about what qualifies as renewable energy or not. But both, uh, all three actually, of, of Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., um, they are among the 29 states that do have renewable portfolio standards, though they differ. But, you know, those, those standards,
really shape uh, the, the market and the demand for renewable energy in, in our region here. So one of the topics we'll explore in the future is how those renewable energy policies impact consumers, impact businesses who are interested in getting into the renewable energy space, and what policymakers are telling us about their, their own objectives by the way those policies are structured. Okay, great. Then you, I'm, this is really interesting because I, I, when you pick up the paper, there's always some conversation and some debate going on about the direction that energy policy should take, depending on whether you're, you know, a renewable, whether you're fossil fuels, whether your own land, whether a whole bunch of things. So I'm, it's going to be very exciting. The other is uh, the status of federal programs and. We kind of touched on that, and we talked a little bit about how sometimes the federal government, depending on which political side you're on, takes a direct hit for investing in our economy. So take it from there. I put that that bomb right in your hand. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I might have to try to, try to defuse it. Uh, so, <laughs> they, you know, one of the, the there's, there's a long-standing debate about whether there should be a, a federal standard for, for renewable energy, which exists in many countries. And here in the U.S., we tend to, to focus on, on state-level policy when it comes to um, electricity generation, with some limited exceptions. But the federal government has instituted a number of programs to support the development of different types of energy fossil energy, nuclear energy, renewable energy. There's really programs that support all of those programs. Uh, for the renewable energy in particular, there were, there were two credits, uh, tax credits, one called the production tax credit, one called the investment tax credit. And these credits actually impact other energy industries as well, but they are considered particularly important for uh, the wind and solar industries because it really, because those technologies are still pretty expensive compared to uh, fossil fuels, these tax credits really made it feasible to invest in new renewable energy technology and uh, generation. And those credits both expired at the end of December of 2013, so they are not currently in effect. And we are seeing and we have seen a slowdown in some places in, in investment in renewable energy technology as a result of that. So. Those two programs uh, really, among others, but those two in particular, really have driven uh, investment and, and the, the, the growth we've seen in renewable energy in this country has been driven in large part to those programs. So we're, we will hopefully be, have a chance to explore more about what the outlook is for those programs being reinstated, and if they're not reinstated, what that will mean for renewable energy producers um, at the, the local level. Hmm. You know, uh, I wanted to ask you a question. I don't know if you are currently thinking about including this in your conversation, but the the uh, I think I mentioned this to you before. The quadrangle, quad and quadrennial uh, uh, report. Report. Uh, I heard somebody who's with DOD, uh, DOE, Department of Energy, present on the report and. They're in the midst of doing a, a huge study of uh, energy and energy factors elements that will impact our you know, decisions going forward in our country. And I was, uh, and I'm trying to get my hands on that report, uh, but it, um, 
apparently a couple of areas that they see as critical to address, uh, one being infrastructure, uh, that our, all of our, our trans distribution channels, our pipes, et cetera, are getting so old that no matter what energy we choose, it, we're gonna be very vulnerable. And so that, that gives rise to the whole issue of, of our security uh, as, as outcomes, an outgrowth of whatever energy programs and policies are set in, into practice. And then the second or third, depending, has to do with the, the numbers, the sheer numbers of people who are gonna be retiring in the next five to 10 years who are currently in energy fields, whether it be oil or uh, climbing towers or whatever. Is that, is that part of this, is that gonna be part of your conversation as well? I think that's pretty awesome. Absolutely, no, it, it, both issues are very important. Um, on the, the grid reliability issue, you know, we talked earlier in our conversation about the, the impact that technology is having on, on, on changing the way the energy market works. One of the consequences of that that is of concern to a lot of people is that as we've made management of our electricity system uh, more electronic and more computerized, there are all sorts of risks that come with that. One. Uh, you know, risk that, that the Defense Department has uh, talked about quite a bit in particular is, is the risk of, of hacking and cybersecurity. Because potentially, mm -hmm. if our grid or portions of our grid are hacked, it could be an opportunity to, uh, for, for, uh, for a nefarious entity to, to do some serious damage to our, our economy and, and to people's lives even. Mm -hmm. um, especially mm -hmm. hospitals and other mission critical life-supporting uh, entities that really rely on uh, the grid to produce electricity. Um, at the same time, as you mentioned, uh, we do have an aging infrastructure problem in this country, and it doesn't just impact energy, it's transportation and other uh, aspects of our infrastructure, uh, are in need of upgrades and replacements, and that's an issue that is actually getting a lot <laughs> Excuse me for laughing. When you upgrades and improvements, and we're talking about the workforce, I can personally identify with with that. I'm one of those that's definitely replaceable at this point in time. Up, so yeah, the upgrade needs. But let's go ahead. Go ahead. I take that. I take that with all with all um, honor and humility. <laughs> I would think you're more technical infrastructure, less about the uh, the people. But yeah, seriously. Okay. So no, people, people should not be upgraded. Um, okay. But uh, in terms of the workforce, as you mentioned, you know we do have an aging workforce as well. Um, it, you know, as we've seen from the nuclear sector, where the average age of uh, an experienced uh, nuclear uh, plant or nuclear reactor operator is in their late 50s, and as we see that population and those people with, with decades of expertise managing a very delicate and important uh, aspect of uh, generation electricity in our country, uh, we're, we're going to see a real need to, to replace them and to get, uh, get people uh, trained. So, you know, that's both a, an area of concern, but also an opportunity because as that cohort retires, there'll be a tremendous opportunity for a um, properly trained uh, younger generation to step into uh, shoes. So, Grid reliability, infrastructure, workforce training, and the future of our, our energy workforce are all areas uh, we have to uh, to address. Okay, and then finally, the uh, outlook for growth uh, in this 
Parisian, uh, which includes the Midlands, the Delaware, the Northern, well, I guess the Virginia, part of Virginia, but Virginia as a whole. Where do you, you heard we talked about that as well, correct? Absolutely. When they talk about, I just took